Um, hey, this has been so fun for me. I really enjoyed getting to know some of you guys uh, last night and also this, this morning. It's, it's an honor to be with y'all. I want to acknowledge something today. The, uh, the six Gospels thing last night, I, I get that that's challenging for a lot of people because you've heard the Gospel is this all your life. I really do think that uh, the kingdom gospel is something that bites us into. Uh, it is a go- it's a gospel that says, come and follow me and participate in my kingdom's expansion. And so uh, it is more challenging, more broad than what I think a lot of people in America have conceived of as the gospel for all their lives. And so that's, I'm kind of stepping on toes a little bit. I also want you to know, guys, that this kingdom gospel is an invitation into experiential participation uh, in, in God's great endeavors. And, like, if you're bored with Christianity, this is what you've been missing. When, when Jesus says, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, he's not kidding around. Like, it's, it's not just come and follow me and I'll get you to heaven. It's, you're going to be used to accomplish my great purposes and purpose and dignity and joy and all the things you long for are found. So just wanted to reiterate that and also wanted to invite anybody who is struggling with that in any way, shape or form, I'd love to talk with you and we can work through it and I can hopefully show you some things that Jesus said. Uh, Just the fact, again, that he talks about the gospel 11 times in the gospels before the crucifixion means that it's an invitational participation with him. I mean, like, the cross hadn't even happened. He's like, let's believe the gospel. Let's, Let's live into it. So it's really, really fun. And anything less is robbing you of something that God desires for you. That, that's how I see it. So let me pray and we'll jump into John chapter 1 again. Lord, help us to be attentive to your word and by your spirit, Lord. I pray that you convict our hearts today and I pray, God, that we would live in greater freedom and joy and I pray, God, that we would step into kingdom participation as a result of our time looking at John 1 verse 46. God, help us. We need it. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. John chapter 1, verse 35, following. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was with him that day. It was about the tenth hour. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go up to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, 
the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have Moses in the law, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. I don't know if you realize this or not, but this is one of the great pictures of how the kingdom advances in the whole Bible. Like, this is ministry right here. It is one of the great snapshots. What what expands the kingdom of God? It's relationship, right? These two guys are walking behind at some distance of Jesus. Jesus turns around and is like, what are you guys doing? And they say, where are you staying? And he invites them into his kitchen. You come and see where I'm staying. And they go from about 10 a.m. through the rest of the day there. And and relationship is established at that point. I don't want anyone to leave this weekend mistaking a conveyance of good theology for disciple-making. They're not the same. I'm all for systematic theology. I am all for seminary. I am all for excellent biblical training. But these guys don't attend a class. They sit at Jesus' kitchen table, and they talk, and they were relational endeavor. Discipleship, disciple-making, I will say, is an intentional and relational process by which people are equipped and mobilized to God's kingdom work. It's an intentional and relational process by which people are equipped and mobilized to God's kingdom work. Look, that's not a perfect definition. I get that. But here's the deal. If we are going to be disciples and disciple makers, the first thing that we have to figure out is what we're actually trying to be and what we're actually trying to accomplish. I mean, we've got to have some sort of definition. Churches all over America are like, we believe in discipleship. What is it? No idea. And, and, and then they say, you need to go out and make disciples. Well, we haven't defined what a disciple is. How can we make something we don't know what it is? Not a perfect definition but an intentional and relational process by which people are equipped and mobilized to God's kingdom work. Intentional meaning you can't just like sit around playing Xbox with somebody and call that discipleship. I've got a bunch of 20-somethings in our, our church, and so like, you've got to say intentional because they'll just like hang out and call that discipleship. Intentional, relational in that it's not a systematic theology class. We've already covered that. It's come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Like I will be with you. We will spend time. We will eat meals together. We will do ministry together. That is disciple making. Intentional and relational process by which people are equipped. You're producing reproducers in this endeavor. It's not just filling your head with a bunch of biblical knowledge, great stuff, but you're actually equipping someone to go out and do ministry. It's not just information. It's not just teaching. It's also training. Training. By which people are equipped and ultimately mobilized. You disciple when your disciple is making disciples. It's producing reproducers. So that's that's what we're looking at here. And the biggest thing I want you to realize is that this is a relational process. That's good news for almost all of us in here. I know that there are a few people who are experts in biblical study. Roger's back there. He intimidates me. You know, he's so smart. Uh, he, he understands the Bible better than most of us. That doesn't mean that you can't be a disciple maker. 
You don't have to be a seminary graduate to be a great disciple maker. You have to love people well. You have to invite them into life with you, into This is for you. You don't have to be gifted as a teacher primarily. It's an interesting endeavor. Disciple making is a broad thing that we are all commanded to do. Whatever your gifts are, that is what God has put in you so that you can effectively make disciples. Your discipleship will look different than your discipleship. Your disciple making will look different than your disciple making. We're all made differently. God left it broad. It can be frustrating because you're like, what are we going to do with this? The reason he left it broad is so that it wouldn't just be one type of gifted person doing all the disciple making. It's God's brilliance in this. Discipleship is the key to your participation in the kingdom of God. That is my bias. I actually think it's Jesus' bias, and so I don't mind having that bias. But I am telling you, Christianity will be boring boring for you unless you are actively following Jesus and unless you are actively trying to impart what it takes to follow Jesus and to participate in the kingdom to other people. I, I just, I think that's the deal. And it's not just the key to your participation in the kingdom, it's also the key to the kingdom's expansion. Weird to you, right? Like, Disciple-making is the key to kingdom expansion, like more people knowing Jesus. Wouldn't that be evangelism, not disciple-making? Like, I've heard over and over again all through my life, you know what, a church can only be a disciple-making church or an evangelistic church, and we want to expand the kingdom, and so we're going to go with an evangelism model, not a disciple-making model. I'm telling you, people say that all the time, and and join me in repenting of that heretical notion. Like, our church in Mammoth Lakes, California, <laughs> place, it's a town of 6,000 people, it grew from about 12 people to about 300 people. Northern California, that's where I was before I was in Houston, uh, most of the people who weren't Christians knew that they weren't Christians. It was a great thing. Like, they, they would if they weren't a Christian, they would be like, of course I'm not a Christian. Why would you be a Christian? There was no real cultural Christianity that you had to try to navigate through where everyone's like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm an American. Like that, that didn't happen in Northern California. Like, that just, yeah, like in, in San Antonio and Houston, you get a lot of that. Of course I'm a Christian. I bleed, you know, red, white, blue, none of that. And so we could track how we were growing. You know, in, in Houston, 86% of Houstonians say that they're Christians. 86%. Can you imagine the other 14% and all the horrible things they're doing to keep strip clubs and all these other cruddy places open? 86% Christian. Give me a break. But that's what people think. So in Mammoth Lakes, California, we grew from 12 to 300 people, 55% conversion growth as a disciple. What I'm going to propose to you is you will never be serious about evangelism until you are serious about making disciples. Because disciple making is actually what produces evangelism. You're going to see that in John chapter 1, verse 40 through 46. Again, one of the two 
who, was, who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew. So Andrew's a guy who was sitting with John the Baptist on the curb. The second day, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Andrew is one of the guys who gets up and follows Jesus. Jesus turns around speaking. He says, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come and you will see. And they spent the day together. So they engaged in a relational disciple-making day. He stayed there with them all day. It was the 10th hour. John, going to verse 40, I'm sorry, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, verse 41. He, he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like Beaumont. It's kind of a backwater town. <laughs> I said that one time in church and people were like coming out of the woodwork saying, I was born in Beaumont. I'm like, it was kind of a compliment though. Jesus came from someplace like Beaumont, right? Uh, uh, just totally like crabbing, crawfishing. Can anything come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. What did we just see there? Wasn't it clear that discipleship leads directly to evangelism? Isn't that what just happened? I don't know that Jesus trained people how to go share their faith at the kitchen table. But somehow all these guys leave and start telling all their friends. Maybe we've made evangelism a little more complicated than it needs to be right i mean because what you see here and i hope this is encouraging is that evangelism is simply the byproduct of discipleship it makes sense as we've looked at john chapter one you believe jesus is the lamb of god so so you follow him into his kitchen we good so far you believe that jesus is the lamb of god so you get up off the curve because some truths are so important that they demand action you get up off the curb and you follow the lamb of god because he's the culmination of old testament history and he invites you into his kitchen you believe that jesus is the lamb of god so you follow him into his kitchen you spend time with him so you love jesus isn't that what happens when we jesus to know him is to love him you believe he's the Lamb of God, so you follow him into his kitchen. You spend time with him, so you love him. You love Jesus, so you introduce him to the people that you love. David Platt has this haunting and great quote. How much would you have to hate somebody not to share the gospel with them? Oh, that is so mean to say out loud. How much would you have to hate someone not to share the gospel. Aren't these guys falling in love with Jesus and they already, and, and evangelism is like, I love you so much, I want you to meet Jesus who I love so much. Let's get these people together. That's all it is. That's all it is. Look, there are some 
hard implications to this. I'm going to get to them in a second, but, but let's just break this down on a human level first. My best friend in Mammoth Lakes, California is a guy named Tim Standifer. My best friend in Houston, Texas is a guy named Carter Bechtel. They live thousands of miles from each other, and I would love to get them together because I think they would so enjoy each other. Like, it is a great desire of mine to get my best friend Tim, Mammoth Lakes, California, and my best friend Carter, Houston, Texas, together. I think they'd have a blast. And here's the deal. Tim cannot save Carter's soul, but I'd still love them to get together. How much better, how much more important would it be then if Tim was Jesus and could save Carter's soul? If I love Carter, aren't I going to try to get Jesus together with Carter? Yes! Here's where the tough implications come in. Not to, sh- you're going to hate me for this. I'll tell you right now. It's going to bug you. I'm going to bug you. If the kingdom gospel bugged you, this, like, I'm not going to get to talk later today. If I am not trying to share Jesus with my friends, the logical implication is I either don't believe Jesus is what he claims he is or I don't really care about my friends I, I don't care that they know the one and only savior isn't that annoying so much of my life is spent wanting to look impressive and to be cool and caring more about what people think about me than what they think about the one person who has ever walked this earth who can save their eternal souls. How much would you have to hate somebody not to share the gospel? Let's step back from that awkwardly convicting thought and and just see discipleship for something that we've maybe never thought about. It's a missional endeavor. Like the reason that Jesus is discipling these guys is so that these guys will take Jesus to the world, to the people that they love. That's why I said earlier, you'll never be serious about evangelism until you're serious about disciple making. You'll never be serious about evangelism until you're serious about disciple making. What we're going to do now is we're going to step into the training part of this. And I'm going to come over here and do this. And hopefully over here, um, we'll see if you can or not. I'm going to put this right here without tearing down all this music stuff. That's going to work well. Now, what we're going to talk about here is called the false promise of discipleship. Before we start drawing things, though, I want to ask you a question. What is the goal of being a disciple? This isn't rhetorical. I want you to give feedback here. To reproduce. What else? To be well equipped to make disciples. Those are all really good, yeah. Following Jesus, yeah. That glorifies God. I mean, the chief end of man is to glorify God, enjoy Him, or love Him forever. So, yeah. 
To be like Jesus, absolutely. To not give up on the faith, yeah. To expand the kingdom. Absolutely. And so you guys have been trained well. You're seeing discipleship as, as more of a, a missional endeavor, which is great. I, I love that. Most of the people who are going to, to say, I want to be a disciple, they want to get closer to Jesus. They want to grow spiritually. They, they want to please God. You, you'll hear a lot of that. And so most people think that their discipleship, their followership of Jesus is actually for them for their spiritual maturity. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Somebody read for me Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Perfect, thank you. We have been sanctified. Who can tell me what the word sanctified means? Made holy, something like that. I mean, that's, that's right. Um, who can tell me what, this is a little harder if you haven't taken Greek. We have been sanctified. Anybody know what verb tense that reflects? Perfect past tense. Yeah, it's past tense and it's perfect past tense. It's a already completed action with ongoing consequences. We have been sanctified. What does that mean? We have already been made holy. We have already been set apart. So a lot of people are trying to be disciples to become. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10 says we already are. Like I'm I'm trying to be more holy by my endeavors. And so here's what happens. We have defined this as the spiritual goal. And what we do in discipleship is we're here. That's you. And, and what you're going to do is you're going to do all of these things, like l- rungs on a ladder, to accomplish, to reach this goal. We're going to go to church. Sorry. We're going to go to church. We're going to read our Bible. We're going to be in a small group. We're going to walk little old ladies across the street. We're going to fast. We're going to pray. All of these will get us to our goal. It's what I would call the human paradigm. Human paradigm. HP. Not Highland Park. Human paradigm. Okay? Now, the question that is always asked in the human paradigm is simply this. How am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing spiritually? And and the way you're going to answer that in this model is you're going to say, how am I doing? Am I doing? And you're going to say, well, I'm doing pretty well. I went to church. I've been to church four times in the last month or in the last six weeks. I've, I've been reading my Bible three out of days last week. I've, I've prayed some. I, I walked that old lady across the street. And so how am I doing is going to be the question that you're always asking. What's wrong with this paradigm? Yeah, it's, it's all about this. The I. The other problem with it, by the way, is the more you do this, the more defeated and frustrated you get. Some of you have fallen into this. You, you, you went into it kind of naively. It's not your fault, but you're like, if I do these things, I'll get to X marks the spot. 
And the more you did it, you're like, I still have a sin nature, and it's still hard, and, and none of this seems to be working early, and I, I'm tired all the time because I'm reading the Bible, but it doesn't seem to be helping, and I'm not endeavoring to accomplish these things. The human paradigm is self-centered, and it's self-defeating. It doesn't work. Here's a, a better paradigm for you. There's a cross. Jesus died on it. By his death and resurrection, he has brought you near. You have already been sanctified, made holy, set apart. Verse 14 is going to go on to say in Hebrews 10, you have been perfected, completed. You're already as close as you'll ever be. Now, wait a second, though. There's a problem here. Why do we do all of this stuff? Because this stuff doesn't get us there, but this stuff is absolutely com commanded. Maybe not the walking little old ladies across the street, but reading your Bible, going to church, small, I mean, small groups, maybe not commanded, but the principle is there of, of let us be together in fellowship. Do not forsake meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We do that in small groups. So all of this kind of stuff is commanded, why would the Bible command us to do it if we're not getting to the Spirit? Jesus has already gotten us close. What is all this stuff that we're commanded to do about? Silence is deafening. Yes, but I think there's a purpose beyond that. It, it, it's not just a, this is something you'll do because you love it. There's actually a purpose for it. And it's ultimate. Go ahead. I do not at all disagree with what you're saying. I think there's an additional purpose for these things, which is all of these things help us to live in an awareness of what we already have. Remember Philippians 3:12, Paul says, um, um, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus. I'm becoming, I'm living in an awareness of who I already am. And that's the already not yet tension of the kingdom, right? Like we are already perfected. We are already sanctified. And yet we do these things to remember who we are in Christ and the joy that he gives us so that we can take that joy and the purpose and the peace and all the other fruits of the spirit with us to the world that desperately needs to hear the gospel. Our discipleship then, all of this stuff that we do is ultimately for mission, not for us. It's for the world. What's the question, the two questions that we would ask in this model? The, how can God be so good? I mean, like, let's just celebrate that. Jesus has done everything. Like, we are totally free in Christ. God cannot love you any more than he loves you if you have believed in Jesus, like it is done, it is finished. Jesus on the cross said, Tetalistai. 
Everything is completed. You are free. You are adopted as a child of God. What a cool deal. That is the only religion in the world that says this. This is so different than all the other world religions. You've been in Christianity for a while. Realize again that this is wholly unique. Wholly unique. And it is so fun. How can God be so good? Are you walking through life celebrating God's goodness for all that he has done through the cross for you to bring you near? I mean, that Christians should be marked by joy. Like there, there's, we've lost joy in Christianity. We, we, we have basically just conceded it. Well, we're just all too busy. Well, I, I've got to work all the time. I, you know, I, I'm going to read my Bible. I mean, to be a dutiful Christian, maybe to try to get here, it's going to beat me down. You're going to end up looking like Schlepprock. You older guys will remember that from, what, what was it, the Flintstones? You know, wah, 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 the cloud just always like coming down on them. It's raining on Schlepprock all the time. That's not Christianity. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self, I mean, joy. We're commanded over and over again in the Bible. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to say it again. Rejoice. Remind us of how good God is. And then the next question that we ask is, how, and it is below this question, am I doing taking Jesus to the world. Isn't that a ton more fun? Like then always just kind of going, you know, I'm still struggling with my sin. I don't know that I'll ever get there in the human paradigm. The Jesus paradigm says, how can God be so good? This is incredible. How can I do a better job of taking all that God has given me and all the joy that results from it to the world because the world is beat down and they desperately need to know this, that by belief in Jesus, we have already gained everything that can be gained. Ephesians 1, we have received in Christ every spiritual blessing. I want you guys to realize that when we start thinking of discipleship and disciple-making in this Jesus paradigm, there's no distinction between discipleship, the disciplines, whatever you want to call it, and mission. And so therefore, there's no distinction between discipleship and evangelism. You'll never be good at going to the world with the joy and the hope of Jesus until you're a disciple, until you're living in an awareness that you've already been brought near and then you're celebrating the discipline so that you are reminded of that on a daily basis. That's where we become really good at what God has called us to do. That's all I got. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thanks for these men. I pray that this is an encouragement to people. First and foremost, Lord, just to think again that you 
have already sanctified us, that you have already perfected us. And I get, Lord, that there's an already not yet tension in that. I, I, Lord, far be it from me to disavow the fact that I still struggle against my sin. But positionally, Lord, it is so fun to think that Jesus by, has brought me as near to you as I possibly can be. And I celebrate that for me and I celebrate it for my friends here. But Father, I also thank you that in this truth, you have given us mission and you have given us disciplines that we would not soon forget these truths so that when we go to the world, we can go with hope and joy and peace that you have promised us. God, I pray that we would understand discipleship as a missional endeavor. I pray that we would embrace that and that you would work through us to your kingdom. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.